The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. today is an established authority on the psychology and technology of leadership and also organizational transformation. Cleve Stevens, PhD, has been formally engaged in the field of leadership development for more than 20 years, serving as an advisor and leadership development consultant to top business leaders and Fortune 500 companies in North America, Europe and Asia. He's also taught leadership and business leadership at the graduate and undergraduate level at the University of Southern California, Beijing University and Northern East University in China. Dr. Cleve Stevens, welcome to you again. Thank you. It's great to be here. Can we continue um, following our last program today, to, mm. uh, together? And uh, let's continue about your work uh, just as an introduction for this program. Uh, just give me a review uh, of uh, the way that you're mentoring uh, leaders in business. Um, the, the the general parameters, just a, a brief overview. Wow. Um, I actually don't view it as mentoring as much as I view it as uh, substantive development. And so it and obviously that, in, that involves some of the more traditional mentoring approaches. Um, but I view it as a whole-scale uh, effort and uh, commitment on my part and usually their part to radically shift how they think and operate and view themselves as men and women and as leaders in the world as such. Um, so what I, I seek to do is get them to stop and step back and fundamentally reconsider who they are and why they are that way. And is that the direction they want to keep going? Can I start with a timeline as we've been sure. talking about before the program? And I want to go back a bit uh, to try and uh, explore and give a bigger picture for the listener, as it were, to, to chart this, to, uh, to see where we've gone since the Industrial Revolution and where we are today, right. and do that as briefly as possible so that we can go into uh, greater depth. I wanted to talk about the definition of ethics as, <laughs> as to the way that it's appointed to the leaders of business that you are working with. So you're asking me to define ethics? I think so in a business in, in sense. A, in a business sense. Well, I'll tell you what the traditional sense of ethics is and um, what I have understood it to be and why I find it difficult to teach the traditional ethics. And then I'll tell you how I approach it, which is slightly different. And the, the traditional ethics has to do uh, with the personal morality made public. And that personal morality tends to be understood in a series of of restrictions that are placed on the individual and it's seen as a reaction against don't do this, don't do that, you can do this but don't do this, be careful over here. And so that becomes, while that has its 
and it's been well codified in culture, it's not necessarily a way that you create a what I think a more truly moral, ethical, and therefore ultimately more powerful leader. What is it that separates ethical behavior from legality? Um, the nature of the commitment and why you're being ethical. If you're being ethical because you want to avoid being doing something wrong, then um, what you're going to end up doing is avoiding and being in contraction. If you're doing something ethical because you're committed to something bigger than yourself, if you're committed to something larger and creating something, then you are going to make mistakes along the way. But they're going to be mistakes that can be fixed because they're driven from a desire to create and cause for the good. So one is a reactive mindset. One is a proactive mindset. One is contractive or contracting and one is expansive. And my emphasis is on clarity around the outcome that you want and making sure that it fits in with your own morality and from that creating, that gives you the space to expand and cause as opposed to try not to do the wrong. Let's look from the 1800s, okay. just for a second here. Sure. Industrial society uh, entered our world, um, incredible impact. Uh, you saw so many inventions, the, the ways that people went from a, a rural society to an industrial society. Um, what is it back then that was so different in that society and in the way that that business was run on a macro scale, as I would define it, compared to the globalization that we see today? How is it? Obviously, we want to look back at history. We want to be able to uh, provide some signs or, or some evidence that actually can help leaders today. Mm -hmm. uh, what is it back then, do you think, that there possibly is something in common that, that they could learn from today? Well, I, I, I see one of the things that, that's distinct from uh, our culture today to then. And so I, actually I see more distinctions than similarities. And the, the challenge – but the distinction is something we can draw from because back in, in the, the uh, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, the notion of being more of a um, – part of a larger whole, i.e. the community, part of a, a emerging culture was embedded in the psyche of most people. There was a natural sense of I am a part of something larger, whether they ever consciously thought of it or not. If we jump 300 years or 200 years to the present, what you see is a mindset that says it is all about me and I am a very transient culture, and I, so I have to look outside of me to find what my bearings are going to be as opposed to know what those bearings are. It doesn't mean that people are any less ethical in certain sense, but it means that they don't have the natural grounding that we had in a communal, a more communal sensibility. Well, I mean, I mean today you, you have the challenge probably from the early 1900s of population growth, of technology of oil, of the paraffin lamp, um, th that certainly changes the way that leaders have to think. It changes, that changes the way, and what that creates is greater mobility. All of this creates more transience and, and less certainty of where I come from and where I'm going. And so, yes, the industrial revolution changes so many different things, but what it changes it, that affects the way people show up in culture is an understanding of who they are and where they're going. That's not as innately built in. Now, there are downsides to that because the, the, trend, the freedom to move about creates the space for us to create and to think in terms of 
who is it that I want to be and what do I want to do when I grow up? We didn't have that 300 years ago as much. It was the exceptional people who thought in those terms, the people who founded different cultural iconic realities. Today, everybody has – they're thrown into that kind of a social, intellectual and emotional welter and there's not a certainty about where to go. Hence, some of the rise we see in fundamentalism, which is a reaction to that. What do you think the, the core definition, uh, core differences between the relationship between the employer and the employee was back then oh. over now? Well, obviously, it was very subservient. We had a society back there where you had workhouses and uh, dreadful conditions, and you 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 had a society that, uh, as quoted by Milton in Paradise Lost, that went from a barter society to, to people with free holdings and 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 bartering with goods to uh, a, a real world, although it had been so before, but a world now uh, challenged by. Um, uh, the the conversion of of goods uh, through money through actually through money but right. um, you know how how did that all change how 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 is it different now how has it changed today mm. well you know the the mm. downside I just got through describing is a lack of a sense of where you come from and where you're going the upside is that there's a much greater sense that the individual in the organization matters as opposed to as you said a subservient model where everybody knew their place and you simply did what you were told and the the space to think about where you could and might go and where you who you might become wasn't wasn't present today people are told that they're who they are as individual actually matters by culture now if that is acted out in the business it, it remains to be seen but it certainly is something that the leader today has to deal with that he didn't have to deal with long ago in fact um, one of my colleagues is is inclined to say that we must today treat all of our employees like volunteers because there is such a freedom of movement. Now that the, – the, the economic situation notwithstanding, the freedom of movement requires the leader to be able to have to think about his people or her people fundamentally as somebody who has the possibility of getting up and going some other place. It's a whole different burden added to a corporate leader. They can't just assume that everybody's going to want to stick around the way they did even 50 years ago. I mean 50 years ago – uh, people could assume that if they got a decent job, they would spend the whole of their life in that job. Which was, in the main, the way that it happened. That's exactly the way it happened. Today, the average college grad can expect to have four or five different careers and up as, as many as ten different jobs before they retire. I'm not talking about short, quick term. This, it's, a, it's a dramatic shift in our mobility, which has an upside, but it has a downside. Let's look at the, the role of the, the CEO, the leader. Okay. Uh, he has a huge challenge, doesn't he? I mean, when you talk to these people, um, you know, you're, you're – good Lord, you're, you're talking about a man or a, a small group of people or a board who not only dictate how the employees are going to live and work, they dictate how the consumers are going to react to what he says and what he does about his company and how he creates his product. And, and, and thereafter, you, you have a man here or a woman who really does dictate to a great extent, if it's a large company, the social mm -hmm. structure. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, are they aware of that when you, when you talk to these leaders? No. As a rule, I don't think that there is a comprehensive – I think they're aware of the pressures that come from that. 
I think they're acutely aware of the different, the different important uh, responsibilities they have. But in terms of recognizing that they dictate the way the social structure goes, which I agree with you completely on, I do not think they see that. I think the majority of them do not want to see that. That's a, that's a, a remarkable responsibility. The truth is the best leaders do, but the majority don't. You know, uh, some years ago, I can remember getting into a uh, getting into trouble in a, in a job when I after I first graduated, and um, I can remember my boss in London saying to me, "You know, when you're in here, you're thinking business, nothing else. People don't matter. Mm-hmm. It's the bottom line. It is business. Mm-hmm. Uh, your personal um, uh, feelings uh, about the other people around you, you take it out." Right. It's not part right. of this part sure. of it. Now sure. that's not the case now, is it? it? It's not the case and and for good it's not the case. If the leader is smart enough to understand that that is a good because a lot of leaders would li- wish they wish for a day when they could do that because it seems a lot easier. But um but no, it's not that way today. And in fact, um the wisest leaders, that represents what what I uh loosely call the old paradigm. The new paradigm, which we have not moved fully into, we're kind of in that place where we're trying to make that transition, says that not only as the CEO or the president must I be absolutely concerned about the well-being of my people and be concerned and encourage them to be concerned about their colleagues' well-being, but that actually will serve me in my my more narrow interests of the CEO, which of course is the bottom line. But if I can expand the range of my interests, that's going to serve my more narrow interests. Now, how is the board going to look at that? How are the stakeholders <coughs> going to look at that? I, I, I'm, I'm being naive. I hand it to you, but I'm just going to throw it out. Uh, you know, stakeholders, uh, 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 dividend holders, whoever it is, they're going to want a strong individual, a strong character. Right. Um, I'm sure that there are still a lot of, lot of company structures that are so very traditional in their style that will actually knock him out if he shows any sort of empathy towards his employees. Well, it, 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 yeah, it depends on what you mean by strong. Yeah, th- there's the strong cold, which is um, I indifferent to the well-being of my people. And there's the strong smart who not only is caring about the people but is very aware of the fact that this is how he builds and shapes things. So what does he do? You've got to take a little bit more longer-term sensibility and you have to be willing. Now, the real strong leader is willing to enroll and teach his board how to get from A to B and not to assume that how we've always gotten there is how we're going to get there. So there are some fundamental shifts that the, what I call the really strong leader, who has the, the bigness of character to be empathic, at the same time knows that there are going to be many old school players on my board of directors, and I've got to figure out how to satisfy some of their more basic needs. And, quite frankly, I've got to persuade them that there's a very strong cause and effect relationship between empathy and results. You know, there's a, a, a very strong uh, think tank uh, in this country that says that product, quality, and delivery is everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with me that possibly there has to be uh, a transition here to, yes, maintain your product, but to think much more 
in human terms. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a- everything that I see out there, and quite frankly, everything that I do with my clients in the domain of transformational leadership is based upon the fact that that equation is a four-legged chair with only three legs. It doesn't hold up. The equation that you just described, you've got to bring the human into it because as I have said in our conversations before, David, the human is what drives the business, not the product. You need a doggone good product, I, I, of course, and you want excellence in that product, but the product exists because the human exists and the product exists for the human. The Sabbath is for people, not people for the Sabbath. You know, it's, it's getting our things in order. Let me just... Uh repeat, uh, uh, give you a quotation here. Um, Ethics is a broad and murky area. The workplace is full of ethical dilemmas and issues. That was Orsini and McDougall from 1999. Mm -hmm. Another one is, therefore, employees feeling the pressure to perform may resort to unethical decisions in order to meet the goals that they feel are unreasonable. This can happen at any level of management. What is it that, that you think that that is telling us um, you know it, it's amazing that uh, ethical decisions have to be made all the way down through the food chain Sure. Uh, and so this is why I began this program by talking about the ethical dilemma because it has to be absolutely refined, defined and nailed down at the top for it in, in, in order for that to work cohesively all the way down through the chain well, you know, let me, if, if I could, let me explain and make a distinction between the old and the new paradigms the way I understand them. And, and, and it, it, it speaks exactly to how we address the ethical dilemma. Or, see, ethics is about how we should live our lives. It's not just about rules and regulations. To be a truly ethical person means I've made a clear decision about how I want to live my life. That has at least as much to do with the goals and the ends that we're after not just the means by which we get there. Now, is that not how the Founding Fathers intended it to be when they created a republic? I think that would be... That essentially that it was a republic uh, with a a civilization or or a country that was based around the rule of law as being the, the pivotal success of that society. The rule of law that was built and beneath the rule of law, what the rule of law was built on was a an end toward which we were looking. What was the life that we should live? The rule of law was not for the sake of the law. It was for the sake of the people to better live their lives. So the law was meant to be a servant of the greater goal after which people were, were, are pursuing. And the, in the old paradigm, what I would call the transactional business leadership paradigm, we are focused exclusively on a very short-term Immediately, why am I here? I'm here. I've hired you because I have money. You have labor. I need your work. You need my money. And so I'm going to hire you. We're going to make an exchange. And my job is to have you produce results, and your job is to produce results, and I pay you. That's the transactional model. Nothing wrong with it. That's the model that we've operated from. What we've also seen in history is a different model, a model that's and is fundamentally built on this ethical premise. The premise is that my job as a leader is not just to get my people to produce a result. My job as a leader is to make my people better human beings so they better live their lives 
And as a result of that, they're not only going to produce a better result, they're going to produce a better life. But my job, the ethical conversation shifts completely from, okay, how do I obey the rules to how do I create better people and create a better culture as a result of my leadership? You know, it's an, it's an awfully tall order, isn't it? For, for any leader uh, to juggle every day the product and the services of the company, the uh, political uh, strategy of the company, the, uh, the way in which he has to tackle the stakeholders on one side, the employees on the other side, the consumer over there, right, right. and all of this, as I had mentioned to you before the program, is, is a triangle in which he sits. Do you think that in a, in a way that this is going to be the one vehicle that will lead to so much attrition in business in the future because that is so difficult to attain? You mean the, the management of these varying demands of his or her interest? Yes. So, and I say that because of the capability of the CEO or the head of the industry to actually be able to handle that uh, in very basic terms, being a social historian, being a social worker, and being a businessman, um, very, very difficult to handle. You know, it is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going back to this, though, it is virtually impossible to handle if you are in a reactionary mode, which is what the transactional mode has been. I am perpetually more or less in reaction to all the various uh, 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 interested parties who need my guidance. The transformational mode says that there's a, there's a bigger objective that I'm after. And what, what's interesting, David, what I find with leaders who are able to make this distinction is that they find that their capacity to lead their people and lead and address all of the different interests you've talked about, whether it's, it's the industry standards, whether it's the consumer, whether it's the employee, whether it's the demands of, of the law, what they find is when they have a shared purpose with their people, when they have been able to invite their people, and I don't care whether the company's 2,000 or 20,000 employees, when they've been able to invite their people into a shared objective, it doesn't mean that we flatten out the company. We still have the hierarchy that we have to have. But what we have is a unified shared effort, which, by the way, goes back to the very first question you asked me or early question you asked me about the way in which it was different today versus then. The good news is that that could create a shared sense of I belong to something. I, and I understand that. Um, and that is definitely the, the, the way that this has to move. I'm, I'm trying to think of a, of a comparison, and, and I'll raise one, but it's probably an extremely difficult one. If you look at the Republic, if you look at the Founding Fathers and the Declaration of Independence, the whole premise was to create a government that had a negative effect in so much that it didn't um, have direct implication. It would not... Um, uh, get into the uh, lives of people. It would ap allow people to have freedom, to be their own capitalists, to become their own tools, which is the capital. Um, and th is this not the dilemma with heads of industry 
because you see that way in 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 uh, society in America, the American dream, which is why it's worked so well, is that people are not interfered by the government. And, uh, mm. Now, that may be different now, I, I grant you, but then they, they don't have the interference. Uh, it is based around the premise of, I have property, I've worked hard for that property, I have the title of that property, mm-hmm. I can do with that property whatever I want mm-hmm. to. Now, what I'm getting at here is if you apply this to the corporate mansion and you apply this to the uh, shop floor upwards to the executive board, Right. None of these groups really want to be told what to do. They still want to have that freedom. So how is it that you can teach a leader to be able to do the very things that you're talking about without compromising the people in that chain, in that company, to feeling as if they have to do something in order for the company to work? I think what I'm talking about is that sense of control in yeah, people's minds. Yeah. The what's interesting about the I think the human animal is that we are as much as we are we have these two poles, David. We have the desire and the drive for autonomy, the need to stand alone, the need to feel like we're the authors of our own lives. That's what you're talking about there. But we also have, and this must be balanced, we are fundamentally – Aristotle said that there's no question but the human being is a fundamentally social creature. We, the polis, the idea of politics is bringing the city together. Are, the are, you, together. Are, are you talking about the premise here of codependence in terms of the way that the relationship works between use, employees in, and, I would and use, the, the, yes, the board? I would use interdependence and I, um, because the codependence has all the, all the pejorative connotations that we, we attach to that. But yes, I would say we are – You know, um, theologian Paul Tillich talked about the courage to be. And in this conversation, what he's saying is we've got to learn to both stand as strong individuals and recognize that it takes courage to be in community or society too. So the organization, the best business models recognize this. And so what do we want to do? We want to produce great results. How do we produce great results? This is not that novel. We create great people. We don't just go out and buy them. We buy them when we can. But we, we actually create a space where people can flourish. So we support both their individual need for autonomy. This sounds so idealistic, but it's not. We also let me let me just finish that. We also support the fact that they are fundamentally social. We need to interact. We don't do this thing alone. This thing called life. And and going back to that statement that I had made, where. And I, I'm sorry to keep returning to this, but no, it's, no, it's, no. it's been the, the the point of a recent program. Is the founding fathers mm. it, it are, have created this great nation because they gave rights to people. Right. They gave them the right to be. Uh, and I, I'm tr- still trying to fully recognize the definition of the word freedom. But they have given us freedom. They have given us the right to create our own tools, whether that's tangible or in our hearts or in our minds to be able to either work on our own or work for somebody else. Now, is there any way that you can train leaders in a big business to look at employees now not as employees being paid, but to look at employees as their own capitalists, their own tools, and actually saying to them, you know what, you're in this organization because you've got a tool 
that I need to make this organization work and you're as important as every other cog in the wheel. And I'm, I'm just trying to ensure that I understand what that, uh, that leadership role well, is that you, you, that you are uh, allowing them to become. Well, and, and what I'm trying to describe is exactly what you just said. It, it is when the leader recognizes that we're partners. You may be three levels down from me. I may be the senior vice president of sales, and you may be four levels. I'm one of my salespeople. But you, in fact, and I are partners. We're playing a game, and the game is not just producing results. That's there. Now, does the old human um, enemy come in there, though, of ego? Of course. There's, there's virtually no – but see, here's the deal. You see, the ego for only the most highly evolved soul, whatever that means – remains a driving force, but so does the need to connect, the need to share. But let's just, let's take it out of this idealistic notion. Let's look at it from enlightened self-interest. I know that if I serve you as my follower in a way that you're smarter and stronger and better, you're going to play better. And so if, if I am doing this from an egotistical point of view, I'm going to be better. The problem is most people are ignorant egotists. They're unenlightened, self-interested folks. So what I'm saying, though, is what happens for people when they begin to engage their employees, even some of the most cynical, hardened business people that I've worked with, when they begin to engage their employees from a different point of view that says, yes, we're in this together, and my job is to have you win as much as have me win, what happens is a part of our nature Lincoln used to talk about this as our, the, the better angels of our nature. And you've, you and I were talking about Lincoln earlier. Um, the part of human nature that is vital and alive, that is non-egotistical, but doesn't abnegate the needs of the individual, but says, we can do something together, and we're better together than apart. So, so when you are working with these leaders, you are mm. looking at two areas. You're looking at one formally, how to change the mindset of the leader in so many ways, yes. not just as a businessman, but, but actually changing his, his, not only his outlook on those he's serving and, and those that he's providing a living to, but moreover, you're finding out how that leader has to change here, how he has yeah. to take the, his life up to now right. and say, this was right that was wrong, and this is what I'm talking about in these programs in drawing that, land in, uh, that line in the sand and charting back, as I do with my programs, to people's childhood mm-hmm. so that you, mm-hmm. can, yeah. you can now, in your 40s or 50s, you can say, this is where I was, but I need to be here to be able to service a completely different world. And is that, that's absolutely. the way that you approach that. That's them. absolutely right. So I start from the assumption that people really can grow and change. We now know that the brain is not – 15, 20 years ago, neurologists would, have, would, would say the brain is still largely hardwired. We know that's not true. We have a plastic brain pattern. Now, the – the net result of our capacity to change is we have to really want to change and we want, and we want to expand. But l- let me back up for a second here. Y- there are two things that go on in the transformational model. Two things basically. I'm concerned that the individual leader grow and become stronger, become smarter, become more capable and competent as first and foremost a leader 
I say first and foremost. First as a leader, but foremost as a human being. The second thing I'm concerned about is how they actually shift the culture of the organization so that their people grow and become. What I will guarantee each one of my clients, and I do this with every time I start with a new, new, a new organization, I guarantee them if they're willing to take this model on fully, not only will they enjoy their lives more, not only will they experience a greater degree of power and autonomy and empathy and joy, but they will produce far better results than they've ever imagined. Now, here, here's the thing. We think that if we care, it means we've got to care in conflict with the bottom line. And that is a primitive way of thinking. That, unfortunately, that's still the dominant way of thinking. And that's the way of thinking that has led us to where we are. I see every day in my work with executives in North America and Europe, Every day I see executives who are beginning to make this connection that if I really confront myself, and, I, and that requires going back to my childhood a little bit, just like you said. If I really confront myself about what drives me and what I really want, it's not going to be as far off from what I would like to want me to believe. In other words, my, what I think I should want is much closer to what I really want than I realize. You, you're actually talking about the ability uh, for leaders to face up to their own fears. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. Uh, and in doing that, I, I would presume that a leader of a very large uh, uh, company has a lot of fears right now. He has <laughs> stakeholders on no, the one no. side. We need to make profit. We need a good bottom line. Uh, you have employees on the other side. Less now the unions. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that last part of that triangle that I've talked about, I, I want to know what is the correlation between the employees and the consumer and how does the leader see that? Because surely the consumer and the employee in a very transparent society where people generally are becoming, I, I, I'm not sure intelligence is the way to, to, to state this, but certainly common sense is slowly coming yeah, back. Yeah. Um, how, does that, right. how does that work? Well, let me, let me tell you, um, if you would indulge me, um, this is, gets, I will try and do this briefly, but... The methodology that I uh, in work with my clients on has to do with addressing four fundamental human needs. And I say that if you are able as the leader to address these four fundamental human needs, two things will occur. Three things will occur. First of all, your employee satisfaction will go through the roof. And what we know about employee satisfaction in a reasonably managed company, you don't have to be a great company. When employee satisfaction goes up, there's almost a one-to-one -one correlation with customer satisfaction. And what does that result in? The third thing is better results. So this is what I tell my, my executives when I'm first beginning to work with them. If you're willing to think that your responsibility as a leader has to do with addressing these four fundamental human needs, which I'll tell you about in a second, I will guarantee you that your customer satisfaction will go up, your employee satisfaction will go up because excuse me, employee satisfaction first, customer satisfaction simultaneously, and results as a consequence. Now, but you've got to be willing to address these four challenging needs. When you're dealing with these, these leaders, do you cite examples of how 
corporations like Enron, uh, WorldCom in the past failed. Do you set those as targets that they should look at in all of these issues that we're covering here? Or is that negative energy in, well, in what you're doing? You know, the, the, the Enrons and the WorldComs and these other um, organizations are, are such obvious morality tales. And uh, there, there are absolutely cases where I will talk about um, the, the inhumanity and how that leads to this kind of a result. And I will make that correlation. Most of my clients, by the time they've engaged in this kind of a leadership methodology, already see the connection. Because they understand that if you're willing to meet these four human needs, there's not going to be space for that kind of thinking. And there's not. And, and by the way, you, this this model precludes the fact precludes the possibility of that kind of a leader thriving. It it it, it doesn't make because there are kinlays out there that are going to always be out there, and I don't expect to ever change a kinlay. In fact, I won't work with a kinlay. But this model makes it impossible for a kinlay to thrive. It makes it impossible for that to happen. But again, David, it's because the leader. And let me let me make this if I can. Let me explain to you. I, I know that now I'm going back, but if I can, let me explain to you these four basic human needs that seem that they, they seem um, beyond the pale in some cases. But if you're willing to do that, the, you want to talk about ethics, you're going to still have ethical challenges. You're still going to have ethical problems. But as a rule, the leadership will understand what their ethical base is, period. The, the, the needs that this leader must meet are the need, first of all, it sounds a little lofty, to love and be loved or to be cared for and to care. That is a fundamental human need if we are not being loved, and we are not giving care away in a meaningful way, we cannot be biologically healthy. We cannot be psychologically and emotionally healthy. What is the, the response generally to that? When I go to that, that's a great question, because that's the one that startles people most. What the hell are you talking about? You should really be sitting in my sitting room at home, uh, you know, uh, having a cup of tea with the family uh, talking about these did issues. Did I walk in the wrong door? Is this the Baptist church here? Mm. What are we talking about? Love. Well, so I have a lot of executives who immediately sit back and stiffen up when I say that. But I just keep going because what they begin to realize is that that's – they want to care because part of – so number one is to love and be loved. That's where I get the biggest resistance initially. Now, what's interesting is when they get the, the, the value of this, the ones who are the most resistant are the ones that get most excited about it. Are they usually lying on a couch when you're talking to them? <laughs> um, they often end up lying on the floor, but it's not. But it's not. But it's not a therapeutic process at all. Um, the second need um, is the need to grow. If we are not growing intellectually and emotionally, we are in the process of decay. The only alternative to growth is death and decay. There is no such thing as maintenance and stability. That's an illusion. There's no place in nature where you see maintenance. Even in well-balanced ecosystems, what you see is expansion and death. Those are the two things that are at play. If we as human beings are not growing and not becoming stronger and smarter, we're in decay. So the second need that this type of leader must address, first of all, with his direct reports and then seek it out is the need to grow. The third thing is the need to contribute. The need to make a difference, to know that what you're doing actually serves something larger than yourself. The, it's a law of life that that which does not contribute gets eliminated. And we know that. And so if we're, you know, I, I've, um, 
10 years ago, I was working with a uh, uh, $17 billion company. And it was t- times were pretty good. You know, it was just before we hit that little dip that we, that we now look back as being a very minor recession compared to today. And this client was flourishing. And they had a number of people in what I call the out-to-pasture club. They were senior executives who at one time were really great contributors. But today, they didn't have any space for them, so they gave them a corner office and gave them menial things to do and paid them a quarter of a million dollars a year. Just That's the out-to-pasture club. These were some of the most miserable people on the planet because they knew they weren't contributing. And my advice to these executives was, Either give this guy something to do or fire him. He'll be better off that way. Well, you know, I, I think that might be appointed to, to men in general. There, there, there's a lot of evidence to show that when men retire, yes. that actually uh, their, their soul and their mind actually uh, degrade so far that right. in, in many ways um, it can lead the end, to the end of their lives. That's exactly and, right. And that is probably less about being mis- uh, busy and productive and more about the fact that they cannot contribute. That's exactly right. That's why you see uh, the death rate spiral when somebody retires, whether they retire at 50 or 75. You're absolutely right. The fourth need is the need for meaning. We are meaning-seeking creatures. If we don't have meaning, we will make it up. And we cannot be happy unless what we are doing feels meaningful. Now, that doesn't mean you have, we want to make our employees all go out and, and crusade to save the world. It means that they have to get the connection between what they do is meaningful for the people and the products that they serve and the people that are touched by that product, or what they do is important for the people beside them. But meaning has to be a part of a healthy human being's life, or they will not be fully expressed, happy, etc. And so what I tell my clients, David, is that... Your job as a transformational leader, frankly, is to satisfy all four of those needs in the workplace. May I just uh, give you this statement? Okay. <laughs> You've got that look in your eye. I don't, yeah, I don't know if I like it's this. It's my, <laughs> my unpredictable direction again. Uh, Dr. Simon Longstaff, Executive Director of the St. James Ethics Center, Mm-hmm. Organizations face dangers as long as they rely on people who do things because everyone does it mm. or because that's just the way we do things around here. Now, in many ways, that's suggesting, and I'm sure this is very true, that people uh, are, are like water. They tend to take the the, the easiest and clearest mm-hmm. direction. Sure. Now, is there a danger in that? And, and how do you explain that to the leader that... Um, you cannot have one vision and expect the majority just to follow you uh, like ducks down a path. Uh, You've got to give them a vision that is showing them that they can contribute, that is showing that there is something at the end of that path for them. Yes. In fact, you've got to give them a vision. If it's a really vital and powerful vision, they can see themselves in that vision. In other words, they can own it as their vision. Creating a vision is one of the single biggest problems I see in organizations because most leaders do not understand that a vision is not a big goal. A vision is a painting with a glorious end in sight that everybody in the organization can see themselves in. It has texture and depth and richness. And what I find in organizations is they simply have majority of them have goals. They call it a vision. This is our vision. It's not a vision. It's a goal. 
goals are contained within visions. Are, are you connecting that in some way to the context of litany rather than actually having a, a, sure. a, a tangible product at the end of it? Yeah. A, a, or, or something that, you, tangible- that you're attaining to. And, and guess what, guys? I can tell you that we've, we're there. Yeah, we've we, done it we, because of you, the employees. And, and they, you can tell them that, and they already know that. If you are playing a game that is truly, again, I use my jargon a lot, transformational. One of the key components in this methodology is to say, we get clear about the fact that we are going to cause a specific outcome. And every doggone employee, at some level, is engaged in that vision. And it's not imposed. They're invited in. Now, in saying that, when you're working with these leaders, mm. you clearly have to be very pragmatic. You have to be constructive. Um, yes, you're talking about these four points, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the first of which is love. Um, <laughs> but uh, you, you still, at the end of the day, you have to have somebody who will lead people not just because of a vision or a picture or something that appeases, but this leader has got to really understand the human psyche, the way the human being works, and not do something because they're appeasing them, but to do doing something because it is helping them, yeah. it is helping yeah. society, and it's helping the American dream. People are smart. People know when a leader is full of crap. People know when a leader is saying he's doing this to serve them and he doesn't really give a rat's, you know. People are smart. And so the leader has to be at some level transparent because guess what? The leaders already are transparent. People know when your leader is not in the least bit concerned about your well-being. People understand that. And by the same token, they get it when the leader is committed to their success. Does that mean that they don't fire people? Of course not. Does that mean that they don't hold them to account? Of course not. In fact, in this model, the accountability level goes higher. The demand and expectation on the employees gets bigger and deeper and wider. Does that mean that, that in this, you can expect the long-term outcome to return to a post-war situation where mm-hmm. people within that company are staying longer, are not being swapped up? Uh, out of the company because surely at the moment we're we're in a uh, business society that just hires and fires. Right. Sorry to be generalized right. about that, no, but I believe right. it to be true. You're absolutely right. Now, is what you're doing going to reverse that as yeah, well? I think that I think that it, I would say it brings it back full circle. So I think of it as a spiral. And it brings it back to a higher plane, it, a far better version of the way it was 50 years ago. In terms of people, people fall in love with their companies. My goodness, how much better is it to have an employee who wakes up in the morning and says, I really like where I'm going today, and I am grateful for the leaders that I have. Do you think they don't produce a better result? Do you think you have to crack a whip to get them to do that? Nuh-uh, they produce, and they are much more likely to stick around. Okay, how do you translate that from being a fairy tale Mm. or utopia Mm-hmm. to being reality for these leaders because these leaders no doubt they're in their positions because they're very smart yep but uh, what do you say to them that well, says you know what your your actions not only affect your employees it affects you the consumers it affects your stakeholders it affects all the families and more than anything it creates 
an effect on American culture Absolutely. and the American dream. You know, it's interesting. I will have a very similar conversation to that. One of the things that I do with them in the usually the second or third session with the senior executive team is, and these are two or three day offsites where they have no contact with anybody but themselves and me. I ask them to consider the impact on how they lead and how many people's lives are directly affected by that. I get two reactions. First of all, when we, they start to count out their impact, that the way they lead actually affects whether or not a kid goes to college or whether or not a kid gets abused tonight. When they begin to look at that, two things occur. First, there's the oh shit reaction. Like, I don't know if I wanted to come to grips. The second is, what I'm doing is important. And it's even more important than the bottom line. People get excited about that because it is the fundamental part of human being. doesn't mean that they always operate from a high moral standard, but when you get people inspired about the fact that their leadership matters on multiple levels, the majority, this has been my experience, the majority rise up because it's satisfying one of the four essential human needs, which is to know what I'm doing is meaningful. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, and going back to your statement about the full circle, mm. um, I had put in these notes. Um, it, yes, you are saying it's a full circle. It's not necessarily returning to how it was in the 50s. Uh, or even at any other time. But could it be that in, in charting the way that these programs occur, to at least learning about where we came from and what we can designate as weak and what we can designate as something that worked, uh, is there any way that you can take back your full circle to the magnets back in the 1800s, back in the late 1700s, when the Industrial Revolution started? Because it was simpler, because they didn't have the technology, uh, social problems, family problems, a breakdown of that uh, uh, original intent that the founding fathers wanted with liberty and law? Again, the reason I say yes, but let me, but let me qualify that because what, the reason I say it's a spiral meaning it's not just a circle that's flat. It's a spiral that rises up higher, a spiral that's evolved to a higher plane. We've come full, we can come full circle. We can go back to that place of greater moral commitment and joy of commitment. But, but it's going to be different because there were a lot of bad things back then too. There were a lot of destructive things in the 50s. There was a lot less willingness to really embrace freedom because we didn't understand, and, we, and most of us still don't understand. You brought this up earlier, what is freedom? Well, freedom doesn't exist without responsibility. Until we have responsibility, freedom is empty and meaningless. Well, freedom, uh, yes, it has many meanings, uh, meanings, but of course, freedom I'm talking about in the perspective of the uh, Declaration of Independence. So you're talking the, about the, political the, freedom? The, the, the Constitution. Not really. I mean, freedom uh, is, uh, as stated then, uh, being able to fully utilize liberty. Uh, uh, being able yeah, to yeah, yeah. fully utilize um, liberty and law and um, uh, the and right, the right to be your own creator, your own developer. Yeah. Uh, the right to uh, essentially, at, at the end of the day, in the American dream, 
to be your own destiny. Absolutely. Fail, either succeed or fail, and that is what this country is Absolutely about. Absolutely right. It, is, it, it, Absolutely is, it, it right. is not a European model of socialism with everything nationalized, and I'm going to sit down and watch the television for the day. I shouldn't have said that, but that is <laughs> what's so successful about this there country. There is little doubt about it. It is our commitment to individualism. Our commitment to the, the, the sacredness of the individual and to what it means to be truly autonomous. And again, that is exactly what the new paradigm in business addresses. How do I – you talked about going back to our childhood. How do I confront the things that limit me, that cause me to play small in life? Well, every leader that goes through this process is forced to confront that so that they can realize their freedom. How do you recognize over the course of this work with them that they are indeed changing? There are three different types of results, two primarily. One is more subjective, meaning are they experiencing life in a richer way? Are they empowering and moving their people? Are they So this is subjective. Do their people want to follow them in a more aggressive way? Number one, the subjective, am I growing, am I happier? Two, what am I producing? I use the exact same results to measure myself that any business does. Uh, recently when I began, two years ago, I began with a client, and, and in our first session, the, um, the CFO said, how do you measure your results, Dr. Stevens? And I said, I measure my results by your results. If you are playing this game, you will at the way the way it's designed. If you play this game, i.e., the new paradigm transformational game, I guarantee you your results, the hard measurables, will go up. So, how do I measure whether or not the leaders are growing? I will look at their satisfaction, I look at their people satisfaction, and I look at the results they're producing, hard and soft. What about them? How will they, in the final one minute of the program, unfortunately, oh my goodness, recognize? in themselves that they are not only changing personally, they are changing corporately, they are changing ethically, and they are changing because them themselves had the foresight to be able to look around everybody else and, and see the evidence of their own hard work. The way that I understand that is very simple. They will find a level of full what, – what in, in the jargon of the, the industry that I work in, they will be fully expressed. They will feel empowered and the people in their lives, their wives, their children, their husbands will experience them differently. And when that begins to happen, when you have your followers saying, I love following you. You're the best leader I've ever had. And when you have your husband saying, honey, what's happened to our relationship? That sounds idealistic. But believe me, this work changes people's lives. It's the truth. And that's how I measure it. So Lincoln was very right when he talked about regularly having a wet bath in order to uh, uh, become, become more humble, yeah. to get the feedback, to be able to take criticism Absolutely. in an easier manner without hitting the heart or hitting the mind or, yeah. or feeling threatened. That the, the, the central to this process is, is the, the wet bath. The ability to listen and get other people's perspective. And that's – the growth doesn't happen because we're subjective creatures. We don't see ourselves fully. We need other people to help us understand where we're on and where we're not. That's the wet bath you're talking about, I think. 
That's the feedback, the opportunity. And that takes courage. But when it comes from people who say, I care about your well-being, so I'm going to tell you the truth, not because I have an agenda, but because I give a damn about you, you're out to lunch here. Now, it's amazing how willing people are to hear when they know the feedback is coming from someone who says, I care about you. Seriously. Dr. Cleese Stevens, it's been a pleasure to... um have you back on the program today Absolute and joy. I'm going to look forward to uh, to you returning I'm sure on Likewise. a regular basis and to our listeners I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have you can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org meanwhile wherever you are in this world good morning good afternoon and good evening David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 